If you'd like to hear more from the leading scientists and futurists of our day, give us a follow and tune in each Thursday for a brand new episode of Brave New World. This summer, I traveled to Costa Rica for, amongst other things, a stem cell treatment. But that's for another episode. I also happened to have attended a psychedelic retreat, a rather brilliant place called Soltara in the Nicoya Peninsula. There, accompanied by two Shipibo traditional healers from the indigenous peoples of Peru and 18 other patients, we took a psychedelic of choice, ayahuasca. David Nutt is a clinical psychologist and the godfather of the field of psychedelic therapy. I've spoken to him before on my podcast, Brave New World, and I'm delighted to welcome him back. Before we go into my experience, I'd be really interested just to hear from you about the studies that you've done with DMT. We started off studying psilocybin because it's a, we know it's very safe. It's been widely used. Millions of young people have been eating magic mushrooms in Britain for decades. So it was, you know, it was safe. And then we moved on to LSD because, of course, that's the, the one that is most famous, the one that put psychedelia on the map through the, you know, the writings of Hoffman and, um, and Aldous Huxley, et cetera. And then we thought, well, we better make sure this is a, a general phenomenon. So then we started to work with DMT. Now, we couldn't work with ayahuasca because ayahuasca is a, a herbal mixture. It was probably going to be impossible to get permission because the regulators, the MHRA, would say, ah, oh, no, you know, you can't prove what's in it. So we used pure DMT. And because if you take your pure DMT, it's broken down in the liver. You, we had to give it intravenously. So that's what we did. And, and then we found it produced this profound alteration in consciousness in the same way as psilocybin and uh, and LSD, but more, more quickly. And we can see that if we inject DMT into someone, into their vein, yeah, within seconds, they're having a trip. And you can see that their, their EEG is completely changed. It's fragmented. And that's what you get after an hour with psilocybin orally. So they all produce this same profound disruption of rhythmicity in the brain, synchrony in the brain. It's a state we call entropy. It's a, a state of disorganization, which explains the hallucinations because your brain can't reconstruct the external world as it used to. It explains the insights. It explains a sense of floating away into different parts of um, space or to different dimensions because your brain isn't able to work out exactly where you are in space anymore. So, so that perturbation of underlying rhythmic activity is, uh, is very profound. So, I mean, ayahuasca, one has to admit, as a psychopharmacologist uh, of the current century, you have to admire and respect the amazing insights that those indigenous peoples of the Amazon Basin, they made one of the most fascinating psychopharmacological cocktails that's ever been made. Of course, the shamans say this was something given to them you know, from heaven. This was a, some, you know, an insight that was achieved through you know, getting in touch with their gods. And how it arrived, one doesn't know. But what, what, what it is, it's a, it's a cocktail of two separate plants which are brewed together. One of the plants contains DMT, which, as I've already said, if you take orally, doesn't work because the liver breaks it down. But the other plant contains what we call a beta-carboline called harmine. Harmine 
blocks the breakdown of DMT. So ayahuasca is a drinkable form of DMT. It's the same as drinking mushroom tea, magic mushroom tea. It, produces, it allows the, the, the DMT to get into the body, get to work. And that's why it uh, it's, gives you much longer trips and why it can be used. And, you know, it's very easy to calibrate. You can take a large cup or a small cup. I don't know what you took. Maybe you took several cups. <laughs> well, this, is, this was over, over a number of days. I went to a, an ayahuasca retreat in Costa Rica called Soltara, which was brilliant. It was probably one of the strangest things I've ever done in my life, if not the strangest. <laughs> Parallel to this, I just felt that I've, um, in the last two, three years, I've gone into this, I, I've been calling it a sort of hamster wheel or a Ferris wheel that I couldn't, I couldn't quite, quite yes. get, get off. It was, it was a, a, a loop of thoughts and activities that were obviously some kind of coping mechanism. And I just, I had to do something to, to break it down. And I've tried all sorts of things that people would do to, to, um, just stop and rest and yeah. they just weren't working. The hamster wheel is a, an extremely good analogy because, because actually kind of how the brain works when it starts doing things, it can't stop. You know, my fight or flight mode has been extremely alert. I've been, I felt like I've been tense. And I, I suppose if you are persistently uh, feel like you're under attack, uh, which I have been ba baselessly uh, by various media outlets, I say baselessly because it's all, ba it's, it's all been based on rumor and innuendo, hearsay, and absolutely no fact or proof. Uh, and so it's put me in this sort of fight or flight tense mode that I just could not get out of. And I just felt like I had some, I had to find some kind of sledgehammer to break it. And this certainly was that. Um, I mean, the, the first part, of course, for me was, was a huge, I suppose a huge therapeutic process in itself was being in a group because I'm such a solitary yeah. isolationist individual and always have been all my life. And the group was mostly American. And just hearing, you know, of course, I, I can't break the, the confidentiality of the circle. And um, you know, there were some very grueling stories told there. But even it's just humbling being there and, and hearing the stories of people's lives and, and the, the, the torment and, and, and the pain people have gone through. And, you know, even, even that in itself is, is, is somehow healing. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And so there were four ceremonies and even after the first ceremony, which I took a small dose, I, I already felt like that loop, like that uh, hamster wheel stopped. Uh, and yes. that was the first time I felt that in probably years. So it definitely yes. works. There, there were lots and lots of things which we don't have time to go to all of them. But, but um, you know, some of the more curious things that came to mind were my surgery came uh, to me. I was three months old and I have, a, I had a, I think it's called an in, in intestinal intersection when, when, yeah. the, when, when the intestines get entangled and I was, operate, yeah. I was operated on. And of course I have no recollection of this whatsoever, apart from a huge scar on my, on my belly. Yeah. But I had this vision of, of being in a 1980 surgical, theater in, in Moscow, which would be very kind of austere, bright lights, doctor yeah. wearing a 
a doctor's hat and a and a mask and, and an old school mirror on the on the, on, on the forehead, um, and then it all fades out. And it was it was I guess it brought back feelings of fear and uh, not surprised. Yeah, I mean, it's a, well, you could have died. I mean, that in, that kind of interception is you know very serious. If you doesn't get it, if you can get it operated on, you could have died. And uh, you were it was obviously a massive physiological as well as emotional stress, which you I guess you've not thought about much since. Had you ever thought about it since? Or was I've never. I, I felt that somehow physically, physiologically, perhaps the scar blocks things off because it is a very big scar that I have. Definitely a very Soviet scar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I've not, not thought about that at all. This is, you're touching on something that to me has become really quite central to to my thinking about the the nature of trauma and the nature and how psychedelics can help trauma because it, it seems to me that it trauma in childhood does lay down patterns of thinking that are very difficult to erase and which distort your relationships for all the rest of your lives and uh, and psychedelics may be the only way we can actually really get to terms with them because they're so deeply ingrained Yes, yes, it seems that way. I mean, I could, I don't, I don't think any number of psychotherapy or any other therapy would ever tap that deeply into my three-month-old self. And then the other thing exactly. that came up again was the shamans, the healers would call ancestral trauma, um, epigenetic Indeed. trauma. Is I had this, my, my family all lived in, in Moscow in the nineteen thirties, and that was time of great terror where people were terrified and I had this vision of a Moscow commuter, a communal flat that so just to explain to listeners in, in the, that time in the 1920s and 30s and in the Soviet Union uh, many people lived in communal flats which were flats confiscated from wealthy merchants and, um, and just gentry aristocracy workers and peasants who came into cities from living in the provinces and villages were located in, in rooms or sometimes a couple of families in one room or there'd be families living in the corridors, kitchens. And so a lot of people lived in communal flats, at least until the 40s and 50s. And so I had this vision of a communal flat and, and the washing line and the kitchen, the stove, and just a, a feeling of fear. And which I guess is something that has stayed in my um, in my epigenome, and particularly I know that my great grandfather, who worked in the Ministry of Food uh, Supply during the war, he was he was deputy minister. There was a lot of fear of, and and I think there were lots of there was a lot of fear in everyone's families. Really, oh, indeed, um, I mean, that was that was Stalin's style, wasn't it? Yes. So, so you know, people was dis- what made things work. Yes. Yes. And and people disappeared uh, at night, and nobody asked questions. Anyway, I'd be interested to hear how you you'd interpret that. And- well, I think you're right. I think there's no question that fear and anxiety in in mothers changes the sensitivity of children, makes them more anxious, more vulnerable. Uh, certainly, so at least through one generation. And as you mentioned, with epic, you know, we've got evidence now that you can have epigenetic changes through fathers as well over over multiple generations and so i think it, it's 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 plausible in a biological sense but of course in a psychological sense it's you know you it's also 
part of your your you know your family narrative, isn't it? I mean, I guess your your grandfather was essentially at the you know his survival depended on on the party, and if he transgressed and found found evidence in, in his scientific work that it didn't fit with the, the communist narrative, he was likely to have lost his job and maybe his life. So it was, I mean, I, I think you know it's completely incredible that you've got these two. Yeah, from what I understand, he died when I was three years old. He, he, the attitude was that you make one mistake and you disappear. And, uh, and, and also, uh, you know, particularly because he was in charge of food, it was, it was an, uh, not um, acceptable to make a mistake, particularly during the, the war, the Great Patriotic yes. War. So that, that, that must have been a lot, a lot of fear that somebody lived with. Yes, yes. I wouldn't have wanted to do that job, I can tell you. <laughs> Um, and then I guess the, the only other one I'd mentioned, which was really interesting, is that, you know, I'm somebody who likes to be in control and I know that it affects negatively a yes. lot of things in my life. And by God, one, uh, one, uh, one of the ceremonies, I lost control. <laughs> I was in this, this sort of black void, falling and falling and falling and... Uh, but you survived, and this is the point. This is this is exactly the point. You survived. We, we, we you didn't fight it. I mean, one of the things we've learned from our our therapeutic sessions with with various different uh, people with different diagnoses, if you fight it, if you resist it, you don't get the benefit. And in fact, mm. and it's very hard for me not to fight it because I am someone who likes to be in control. Very very hard. So it was a really really important, a very good lesson. For and the lesson is that you lose control and come back not only you know alive but maybe better because you can lose control. You're you know you can survive without controlling everything. Last thing I wanted to ask you was, and I, I know this this is a bone to pick that a lot of people who work with with um, shamans and healers have with the likes of yourself and Robin and and people who just do science is the is the neglect of the so the historical healer shamanic aspect or particularly ayahuasca and DMT. How, how do you see that? What's your what's your view of of yeah, how do you and, and also can can it somehow be integrated? Would you say? Yeah. So how how does how do modern neuroscientists think about the historic and indigenous um, use of these drugs? Well. The first thing I, I say is I'm extremely grateful for all the work that's been done over the last 7,000 years. And, and I always start all my talks on psychedelics by making that point and making the point that they've been part of human experience for a while. We know that the very first representations of psychedelics are the um, mushroom carvings in the um, in the caves in, in, in um, Algeria, which go back 5,000 years BCE. Uh, we also know, and I think we've got to give a lot of credit to the ancient Greeks, they worked out that a, a cocktail of alcohol, wine, and the weak psychedelic lysergamide in, in Ergot was a very powerful way of being creative, and the Illusinian mysteries were um, fueled. For, for hundreds of years, They were the Greeks celebrated art, dance, theater, music, using psychedelics as part of their, uh, uh, to, to 
part of the sort of to promote the, the right mental state. And I think it's extremely, you can make the case, and I do all the time, that the Greek culture, which of course ended up, you know, driving lot, most of the modern Western culture in terms of things like mathematics, like logic, like philosophy, as well as art. The, the, the flowering of intellectual growth in, in ancient Greece over, over you know, 1,500 years, at least was associated with the use of psychedelics. And maybe psychedelics um, you know, basically underpinned that, in which case they underpin Western society. We also know in Hindu, we know in Hindu, you know, in Indian, in Hindu, Hindu religion, it's very likely that soma, the drink that uh, was thought to have um, uh, generated these rather interesting images of multi-armed gods, etc., was probably a, a cocktail of cannabis and magic mushrooms with semiphedra. So, so psychedelics have been around for a very long time. They probably had a, a phenomenal impact on human development, human culture, human thinking. We're one of the very few cultures, one of the very few periods in history where we try to eliminate that. And we've specifically tried to eliminate them because they make people challenge the, uh, the rather strange and you know, rather militaristic and perhaps over-competitive and over-commercial way in which you know, we've been running our lives the last two, three hundred years. There is reason to believe societies have been using psychedelics throughout history. And for creatives in particular, they have been the source and the method of inspiration. I spoke to another pioneer in the field, Dr. Bill Richards, about another aspect of psychedelic drugs, their ability to induce mystical states of consciousness. There's real frontiers of knowledge that uh, these psychedelic drugs, substances, sacraments, medicines, whatever you want to call them, have profound relevance, not only for medical treatment, uh, treating depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, so on, uh, but also for education and uh, for religion. This is the experiential dimension at the, I believe, at the origin of most of the world religions. And boy, uh, it's not only for medical people, it's for religious scholars, too. And now, back to David. Now, let me remind you, Aldous Huxley. Why did Aldous Huxley call his, you know, his first book, his first experience of mescaline, The Dawns of Perception, named after the writings of William Blake? William Blake, absolute champion of trying to get humans out of the satanic mills and back into the countryside, connected with nature. So what I think, you know, I see myself and I think many of my team would would see it is, you know, we're part of that same, that's on that same, we're on that, we're travelers on the same path. The only thing is we're now, we're answering different kinds of questions. The hard questions were kind of introduced and answered thousands of years ago. Now we're, we're asking, asking the more mundane questions, like how do they actually affect the brain? which is, you know, I, I think fascinating and intriguing, and there's certainly more, yeah, they give you more, you know, they tell you more about the brain than almost any other drug we've ever used, but it's, uh, it, whether that's actually going to help them being used clinically, I don't know, but there, there is one great advantage of having science, which is that people cannot just dismiss 
the conversations that you've had and that thousands of people have had, they can't just dismiss them as being hocus pocus because we can now show a picture of a brain scan and say there are, things are really changing there. And that I think gives us a lot of confidence to take on the, the naysayers and the and the, the you know, people who oppose this approach. Another figure I'm interested to hear from on this topic is the psychiatrist and author Gabo Mate. I wanted to talk to you about psychedelics and mm -hmm. um, the role psychedelics does and should play in what we've been discussing. Yeah, well, so look, um, I discovered, didn't discover, I came upon psychedelics fairly late in life. It was about 13 years ago after I written my book on addiction. People kept asking me what I knew about this Amazonian plant called ayahuasca and the healing of addiction. And I kept saying I know nothing about it until I finally had a chance to experience it myself. And um, within half an hour, I really got that this plant has the capacity to open me up where I get in touch with both deep love that's in my heart and deep pain that I've been bearing all my life. And I said, well, since addictions are all about running away from the pain, what if people could experience as an adult that the pain that they endured as childhood, what if they could experience and see that pain with the eyes of a sympathetic adult? and heal that pain. So I began to understand why people were asking me about addictions and ayahuasca. And so I began to work with it. So I've done that. I've led retreats with the plant. I participated myself as a, taking part in ceremonies. I'm not a shaman. I don't lead ceremonies. I don't chant. But I help people set their intentions um, for the ceremony help them understand their experience during ceremony, um, and help them integrate it afterwards. Now, f as I write in the myth of normal, Freud once said that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. I mean, because when you're dreaming, the conscious mind is offline, and so whatever's in your unconscious will arise in the form of your dreams. Psychedelics are another road to the unconscious, a royal road, because they really open up all kinds of stuff that you've been burying inside, not knowing how to look at, being even afraid to look at. And if you can do, look at what you're carrying inside you unconsciously in a safe, compassionate context, and especially with some of these highly trained, incredibly adept and skillful shamans that really know how to look deeply into you. I mean, I worked with shamans who saw me more clearly within the space of half an hour than any Western psychologist or psychiatrist could have. So psychedelics is a broad subject. There are natural psychedelics, you know, plant-based psychedelics. There's human-made psychedelics. There's a lot of research now with psychedelics in the face of some resistance, but nevertheless, there's a lot more money and a lot more effort, a lot more research. A recent study came out in the States about MDMA and the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder very positive results, not any kind of a panacea. So what I say about psychedelics is they're a very promising modality. They add something uh, that we lack in Western medicine, which is a capacity to, to really get at people's unconscious and to help them see what they're carrying, uh, the wounds, and to help heal them. Having tried ayahuasca for the first time, 
when it was just becoming known in the yeah. Western world 13 years ago in Peru, but in a very sort of haphazard way where I was there with a few friends and they just read about it in some very fashionable magazines and said, yeah. I, I was in Cusco and, and, and uh, after a, a little bit of deliberation, said, let's just do it. So we found some shamans and probably in the yellow pages and <laughs> did a, a, a ceremony there and then. And then next morning we were up and, and on our way to Bolivia at 6 a.m. So it was there was no thinking, no integration, nothing. It was just a... yeah something that we tried and um <clears throat> but recording this podcast i've spoken to people who um have done a lot of extraordinary work in this field uh, it seems like there's a lot of promising studies that are coming out and i um i, I hope that they will be integrated in, in in research more and more i told gabor about my intestinal intersection from when i was four months old i never really asked my mother about this, which is quite strange in itself that I've never really asked her about the surgery. I've got a huge scar on my stomach, even though it was done when I was four months old. Maybe they forgot the stitching in there, uh, mm. I sometimes think. But she told me that I was left in a box for four days, which without any mm. access to me. And then after I, um, I was taken out of the box, I was still kept in hospital for another three weeks and she was only allowed to come in the daytime. So talk about the sleep training that is yeah. sort of <laughs> some, somewhat popular in the West. I guess I got that by default. I'd be interested to, to hear your opinion on that. Well, first of all, it's a highly traumatic experience. The infant, if you look at orangutans or chimpanzees or, or baboons, the mothers are always holding the babies. Always. At that time, you needed to be held. You had this thing happening to the intestines, and it leads to bowel obstruction and you know life-threatening condition. You needed the surgery. Being left alone by yourself like that for a child is sheer torture. It would have left you with a sense of uh, deep existential anxiety, fear for your life, a sense of being abandoned. It's impossible for it not to leave a deep impact. And... Your mother coming and going, not that she meant it that way, but you could only experience it as an abandonment. You don't understand what's going on. So are you saying that this image came up for you in ceremony? Yes. Yes, the the, uh, the surgical theater came up. Yeah. And I haven't really thought much about and, 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 and what was the emotional state that you experienced during ceremony as this image arose for you, do you know? I think it was a night of, uh, I had another image, which I'll, I'll, I'll mention in a second, but it was, I think it was a night of experiencing fear and, um, and possibly abandonment a bit. How strong were those emotions for you during the ceremony? They weren't as strong as, uh, as, as one of the following nights, which was, to do with loss of control. Okay. So, so that was much stronger. The, these were, so there were two images that came up that night, the, 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 the night of the surgery. So that was one. And the other image, which was, I guess, somewhat related to an ancestral fear. You can see how, given just the experience that you endured of being in this box, first of all, having your body cut open and having post-operative pain, and um, 
and then being in this box, you could see how you develop a, a sense that I have to be in control of things, otherwise things are going to go terribly wrong. And then the loss of control becomes a source of deep fear for you. People talk about being control freaks. Nobody's born a control freak. People develop the need to control because of something that happened in the sense that if they don't take charge, something terrible will happen. So I think what happened in the ayahuasca ceremony is you revealed all the fear that you've been carrying all your life. Now, the ayahuasca ceremony gave you the blessing of seeing the source of it. If you recognize how much fear there is in you, you'll be a much stronger person than if you try and deny the fear. And how do you then work with it once you've recognized it? What's the... Well, um, first of all, you need to see where it shows up in your life. Like in my case, my fears very often show up in my personal relationship with my spouse. You know, they show up in my relationship to work. That, this is where therapy comes into it. You know, mm. this is where you, you, don't, you don't deny the fear anymore. It's there. You see its manifestations. You don't mistake it for the present moment. I mean, let's take the example that the both you and I had with the British press. The fact is, in reality, nothing they could say about either of us would materially affect either of us. Yes. Not, not in any significant way. So the fear that, <clears throat> or the reaction that I had in response was totally out of proportion to what was going on. Yes. It had to do with this old fear of not being seen that I've been carrying all my life. Now, once I recognize that, I say, oh, there's that fear again, but it's nothing to do with the present moment. I don't have to take it on. All of a sudden, I have agency. I have become very curious about psychedelics' ability to help us heal, and in particular, how they can help us grapple with intergenerational and transgenerational trauma. This kind of trauma has now been proven by science. I told my story to Bill Richards, and here were his thoughts. Yeah, experiences like that invite integration, not only writing and talking, but sometimes producing art, you know? Yes. Uh, and, you know, it's often said, in this great unity, we potentially are connected to a lot of uh, generational trauma maybe even more than we can imagine, more than we think is our family heritage. Um, uh, it's all in there waiting to uh, be explored and discovered and healed in a way, you know? Uh, the Hindu image of the dance of Shiva is strong and majestic and powerful and uh, beautiful, but it's also scary, you know? Yes. Is there includes both death and what we call death in life, you know, transformation, fire. It's uh, pretty powerful stuff, but wonderful. Ayahuasca is a wonderful and powerful thing, but even more powerful is the ability to interpret and integrate the knowledge coaxed from our subconscious by this mysterious drug. I realized through my conversations with David, Bill and Gabor 
that the intense fear which ayahuasca brought to the fore from my subconscious was one I had to face. Through my conversation with Gabor, I have come to understand that the fear that visited me in the past two years was in fact a response to something much older. This new fear has risen since I became the object of a repeated media smear campaign, which culminated in a coordinated hit job made up of documentary on national television and a number of articles in the rival publication, each made baseless accusations. A veteran politician who is also a close friend and still sits on the front bench today told me recently that it's rare for a public figure, even a politician, to come under such sustained and vicious attack without a shred of evidence. However, as we will shortly hear from Gabor, it is now clear to me that the origin of this fear lies elsewhere. How would you say the newspaper, the media attack would relate to, if in any way at all, to what I've told you about myself and what I've discovered? Well, first of all, you had no control whatsoever. Secondly, you were quite alone with it. Thirdly, this sense of abandonment of all of a sudden being um, expelled from the club. I don't know if that came up for you. Um, but really, um, what I see it bringing up for you is all the fear. All the fear that the uh, plant revealed to you. Well, I, I, I thank you so much, Gabor. I, um, I really, really appreciate uh, your time. It's incredibly, incredibly interesting. Thank you for listening to my podcast and I hope that my journey with ayahuasca has opened your mind to the power of psychedelic therapy. With all the challenges, it can also bring a lot of growth. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brave New World. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast.